What's up, everybody? Welcome to the final episode of Exhaust, which we are appropriately ending on our Fukuyama reading series, where we ram in the second half of the book in one episode. <laughs> What's up, John? How's it going? What's Good to have up? you back, bud. Good to be back. A little somber, as it is it the is last somber. episode. But nonetheless, good to be here. Yeah, it is the last episode. I mean, you know, I don't want to get too behind the scenes, but we legit have not talked since I think the last time we recorded. Not substantively. You know, that's just how that's just how crazy it's been. So it's good to be good to be back in the booth. It is cooking with our chickens. Uh, (laughs) whooping it up with the pyrex (laughs) Um, (laughs) i like people don't really know like how much like nola bounce (laughs) like grimy southern hip-hop mixtapes we used to listen to back in the day together that is like for sure a feature i'd like somebody the other day on twitter like i posted a training footage or something from arm wrestling practice and somebody was like you do not look how your voice led me to expect. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. It's <laughs> really funny. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. I believe it. So, okay. We are here to talk about the second half of Fukuyama's book to sort of like give an overview of what's happened so far. So we have sort of the triumphalism that really comes clear in the first episode we did, which covers the first part of the book. Then we brought Matt Kelly in to talk about some of the like econ theory stuff is going on. We get sort of two perhaps ideas of how history works. One is sort of scientific development and then the other one is economic development, right? So it's like history has ended. What is history? He provides a couple answers and then he says, but that's not sufficient. So what could actually be the engine? We're going to get the engine here in this section in the struggle for recognition, sort of thymotic or thumotic desire, depending on how you translate the ancient Greek, which is a sort of Kojev Hegel idea of the fight for equality under the law. Because I think that how that's going to be, it sort of has liberal presuppositions within it. And yeah. that, that that's sort of what gets laid out as the engine here. Do you think that's right? Sorry, I've laid it out anyway, not whether he's like right at bottom. No, yeah. I, pretty much. it. He points out like that what you're getting may not necessarily be Hegel or Kojev, but just like the weird mishmash of the two. Occasionally mm-hmm. he separates where they might disagree. But I got the sense from reading this that this was like mostly Kojev. Mm-hmm. And like whatever Hegel we were getting was like getting filtered through a very particular lens because mm-hmm. most of the time he's just citing Khrushchev. And yeah, I think yeah. that they seem like pretty like figures that echo each other because mm-hmm. Khrushchev does like his philosophical stuff and then becomes the European Commission bureaucrat, like living his philosophy, Which honestly, I respect. Guess. He was yeah. just like, there's no point in doing philosophy anymore. We've reached the end of history. I'm going to be a bureaucrat. Like, that's what's on the table. And I was like, damn, most people don't walk the walk, but that guy did. So yeah, he's like, now I'm going to, you know, like usher in the end of history personally by <laughs> filing <laughs> these forms. <laughs> yeah. Which feels, you know, it's consistent at least. And like Fukuyama's existence within the U.S. like foreign policy, policy establishment, and then kind of trying to like do a similar thing where, yeah there is like a philosophical groundwork for him 
to be doing that. I don't know how much that mattered to him personally, but like it's present in the book as like there's mm-hmm. philosophy and then there's like actual governance activities and these are kind of somehow connected as in like this is what has to happen now that this is the philosophical state of affairs i guess which you know it kind of mirrors in a weird way in a very different way the the uh, what is it the decline of western civilization guy the spangler spangler he says that like there's no point in philosophy or art any longer Mm. but for him it's because like we are exhausted but what you have now are people like Cecil Rhodes and like, that's who you should be is like mm-hmm. doing, <laughs> yeah. doing like, I love it. But like the fucking, the guy who found Rhodesia. It's like, that's, that's where you want to be dog. Like that's basically Spangler's like, you just do science and empire super hard. And like, if your children want to go into literature, like dissuade them because there's nothing more to be written. <laughs> yeah. Simply read the old books and like, build railroad i guess but he's coming at it through like a super watered down like nietzschean monopoly on (laughs) yeah and i feel like what it'll be important and interesting because nietzsche is a big part of this book and he Mm -hmm. offers an antagonistic and different view of history and like i guess different human societies and their relationship to one another um Mm -hmm. that kind of we could get more into later. Yeah. So I think right now, like what's sort of important is like the, the master slave dialectic as, you know, Fukuyama inherits it through Kojev, right? Yeah. We should talk about that. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah, I think we have to, because that's really, that's really the motor that he's going to do. I'm not going to say if his reading of Hegel, Kojev, whatever this thing is, is right or wrong. I don't actually think that that's like, important we can interrogate his argument on its own merits rather than doing like the genealogical interpretational critique of this you know we can be external rather than imminent or something like that Mm. Uh, i think uh, what you have to understand i think this is the most powerful point about this you know the master slave dialectic is the idea that there are some at the top some closer to the bottom and that history is those at the bottom sort of like striving for recognition with those at the top but nobody's happy Right. Like the mat, it doesn't matter to the master that much that they're recognized as powerful by slaves, because why would that matter? Right. Like you want to be recognized by an equal, but in order for that to happen, you have to give up your position as an equal. You know what I mean? And then as, as slaves, sort of the trade-off you have to get is that you then have to like take responsibility for the society that has now recognized you. Right. Like you can't, really claim, he doesn't say it in this way, but I think that this is part of his like subtle argument against Nietzsche is that you can no longer actually participate in slave morality in a coherent way once you've been recognized because that is to sacrifice your own recognition that you fought so hard to get. Whether or not like anyone in politics owes anyone else ideological coherence is another, <laughs> is perhaps another question. But yeah. I'm, I'm at least charmed by that formulation, actually. Like I enjoyed that explication that he offered. And importantly, this is a better explanation than either science or like the economic development argument, because it seems to capture more of social life. Um, it seems to actually be more about governance itself. In other words, it's like, more richly cultural, political than the hard sciences or economics. Again, 
people might disagree. I think there are all sorts of cases you can make, but I don't want to say there's nothing to that. Yeah, I think what I have positive to say about it kind of also is stems from that realm because it's difficult to explain. I mean, maybe so. Okay, one alternative I can offer would be like when you think of democratic activists in a place like South Korea, where mm-hmm. it wasn't simply clamoring for better living conditions, although that was often part of it, mm-hmm. was just not dying in like factories and stuff, mm-hmm. being like something perhaps the government could help provide since they were the sort of engine of it happening in the first place due to the mm-hmm. the relationship between business and the state. There was also a heavy component of like, it's not just that, but it's also like we do want representative democracy and we're willing to die so that someone else has that. Mm-hmm. And that, so when I was reading the thumotic explanation of this that we're given by Fukuyama, I was like, there's something I feel like to recommend this mm-hmm. because it does feel like when you read an interview with like one of those people who actually, pro- you know, many of them did go then die. Yeah, you beautiful kind of get passages the sense, in Bruce Cummings. What is it? Korea's place in the sun. Place in the sun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You get like, you feel what he's talking about. Where you there's this whole like, this is something bigger than them that they're willing to completely overcome these basic instincts for self preservation, just complete self sacrifice towards an ideal. And like, what is the content of that ideal? And when he talks about this sort of basic dignity and recognition of you as a human being who should be treated in a certain way and be given a certain amount of accorded a certain respect and ability to have a say in your own, like all this kind of stuff. It doesn't seem like, oh, this is obviously false or like you just made this up. Like there's something to that. And I think it ends up being like the through line of the book, like its strongest part in every Mm -hmm. section that it comes up. However, an alternate viewpoint you could take in the one, which I don't remember if I suggested this before or not, I definitely thought it, which was that there is simply a certain level of cultural power that the US and Western Europe generated by becoming the technologically most powerful, militarily, economically civilizations like on the planet. Mm -hmm. And there were some severely traumatic colonial experiences in these places that later ended up idolizing Western European style democracy and development that could also go a long way to explaining how that was interpreted as the way towards achieving a certain level of human dignity. Like there are specific historical circumstances that made this the way that things are developing that could also offer a satisfying explanation that doesn't necessarily appeal to like the development of Geist or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I think that on some level, perhaps both are, have something to say about the reality of the situation, you know? And that leads me back to like the, the parts of this book I like the best are the parts that are like pretty close to just him being like (laughs) Plato. Here's some Plato. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you you and I were talking like to, you know, there's all sorts of apparia and ambivalence that creeps in as the book continues, and it, it really ends there, I think. And then I was describing this as the the futures portfolio of the end of history. <laughs> it's like lots of like <laughs> subtle hedging you know, and stuff like that. Which honestly, like cool. <laughs> yeah, which respect, right? Like I, I like that. I like the ambivalence is I think the best part of this, where it gets the most tedious is I think where he's sort of like settling, you know, op-ed disputes from back issues of foreign policy, you know, about realism in foreign it's policy. It's the most dated. Like it's the, the most dated. That... I mean, if, the only part that felt fresh is that, you know, with guys like Mearsheimer coming to prominence during the Ukraine war and stuff, you could kind of see where this mm. was happening. But there, it also, you know, the sun has yet to set on that. And so the owl of Minerva cannot fly, <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. an ongoing dispute. So you're like fascinating, but I don't know what to make of it yet. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I would say like, that the, before we move on the yeah. one other thing about master slave that I wanted to nitpick and I wasn't sure when I was doing it too much was that. It feels kind of like it exists, just as it's presented to us in this book. It's somewhere between the like primitive state of man kind of, mm -hmm. um, what would you call that? Like rational exercises that were being yeah. done by like Locke et al. Where it's not an empirical account of anything, but it's just kind of like using like these axioms or whatever. I'm reasoning mm -hmm. about man. And then like maybe the state of nature never existed, but it's like a constant like underground that always threatens to erupt into the actual empirical state of affairs. And in that way, it does have a reality, even if it was never a historical empirical one. Yeah. When I'm reading the master slave thing, I feel like that's kind of something going on similar to that because, mm -hmm. but you want to like criticize it because he makes reference to actual historical circumstances to talk yeah. about it sometimes. And so you're like, well, okay, if you want to say that the master is never satisfied with the recognition of the slave, then what about the recognition of his fellow masters, which he often did get in spades? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that seemed to be, and in fact, like a lot of what history is, is about intra elite conflict. Exactly. For that recognition. Like, and it's also why like, uh, since Aristotle, people have advised for a stable middle class for reasons that I think Fukuyama also agrees with, right? Like this mm -hmm. is about the global middle classification right, of, of society. That's what this book is really arguing for as not just the best path, but the eventual path, I think, you right. know, with some hedging built in there and stuff like that. But that's that's what's going on here. And, and the reason people suggest that is because there's basically, if we're going to use Fukuyama's sort of structure for this, this thumatic understanding of things. When you have a broad middle class, so the argument might go, you have enough people who can almost like compete against themselves for recognition without destabilizing the system because it's dispersed enough. And if you want a really good example of that, I suggest you open the newspaper. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because that's what American politics is. Things are actually incredibly stable right now in a lot of different ways. And we'll go on into that when we sort of wrap up with our nothing feels possible <clears throat> stuff. That's basically the only question you guys wanted us to answer, by the way. <laughs> so it's the only one we're going to talk about. Yeah, there's so he takes us from the Iliad to like 
parliamentary democracy and a mm-hmm. few short steps, but it's basically that. So this, there are masters and there are slaves and the slaves are forced to do all this work. And the masters kind of, they have a closed horizon in a sense that now that they've enslaved people, they can do it more. They can also mm-hmm. go out and fight more. And like their whole being is in the fact that they are willing to die to be free. Mm-hmm. And so the slave, his whole being is in the fact that he's willing to be unfree in order to not die. However, mm-hmm. this is a situation which can continue to develop according to somebody, Kujav, I don't know, because the slave in doing work. A lot of people are mind, saying. Yeah, a lot of people are saying this. I don't, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying this. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but some people are saying that, you know, apparently working as a slave has two delivery effects. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I I noticed that and I was like this is a weirdly uncomfortable <laughs> like did anyone else point this out? <laughs> like but yeah the argument is that in doing work they learn that they can transform the world around them and there is like it's all this natural useless material that's made useful and into like civilization by the work of slaves. And in doing this, they realize that there's kind of a self-efficacy and dignity that they do possess. And this is the first step on the march to then trying to imagine a world where they can have this dignity. And he says that initially this, these are slave ideologies, I guess, for Hegel, as for Marx. There are like these intermediate stages of like conceptualization of a society where they will have this dignity that their thumos demands that they have now like kind of rediscovered through their work, mm-hmm. but that it won't actually reflect the reality that Hegel thinks they are marching towards. And then the best of these is supposed to be Christianity because Christianity fully sort of establishes this brotherhood of man and equality. Yes, yeah, Hegel's yeah. right. And Hegel's only problem with it is that it looks to heaven rather than on earth for this to be achieved. And so he thinks that like the perfection of this is realizing that in fact, you know, this is supposed to be instantiated here and that he was also saying that like God is the creation of man rather than the other way around. And so you get into the stuff that I think probably he doesn't get into it here, but it kind of seemed to me like that was the geisty stuff of like everything is the unfolding of spirit. And that's why, like, I don't know, is it like everything is God kind of philosophy? Right. Sort yeah. of. What is it? It's sort of like drifts into a, a strange sort of secular occasionalism, you know? Like, that's, yeah. And it's not quite Spinoza, mm-hmm. but it's close. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are many technical reasons why it's different, but like in that sense, at least, it's not different. And yeah. that there's, yeah, the, the absolute is everything, et cetera, mm-hmm. whatever. That's neither here nor there, but just so to speak, like for Hegel, the French Revolution inaugurated this becoming a here and now, like we are ushering in the common respect, universal common respect afforded to all people that is not being deferred into any afterlife any longer. And so all of these old forms of authority, of association and of belief are being swept away and replaced by like the new wave. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of like, it's the situation we're in now. I think that's kind of, this seems to be the end of history argument is that nothing new has ever happened since the French Revolution, just new iterations on the stuff that they more or less inaugurated. 
and mm-hmm. that we're going to be doing that forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, first of all, I want to, I want to say a couple of things. Like one, you can make a very interesting, I think, rejoinder about the master's eventual recognition of the slave. You know, if you just look at like America immediately post-Civil War, like for the next 10 years, you know, and you might also have some doubts about, I don't know. I've, I've heard people like sort of say like, you know, in like a Hegelian stance, like those who'd been enslaved might not be ready to govern, like all these things. And I was like, Eesh. I mean, first of all, that makes me like morally uncomfortable. And second of all, like, you know, you just look at that like eight year period, eight, nine year period, almost a decade immediately post-Civil War, where there was a ton of immediate black leadership and stuff like that. And then how it was received <laughs> and overturned by former masters. And you might have some, some I think, significant questions about the, the willingness of the master to appreciate their former slave as an equal. And that's not to do some sort of like 1619 guilt <clears throat> trip, of course, or something like that, or to be cute, but that uh, there might be greater unevenness at play here that doesn't just complicate Fukuyama's argument, but actually makes it very hard to make on the terms that he wants it. To be made. And again, what's fascinating to me about this is that this is ultimately a book about American triumphalism, and there is so little of America in it. And the America that we do get, which I'm about to hop into, because this is sort of what he wants to say about what's different about liberal democracy, is purged to a great extent of its own roots. And I'm I'm just going to read this because I actually just have written LMA on the margin here. (laughs) Um, So here's here's what I've underlined. This is from his chapter, The First Man. Contemporary liberal democracies did not emerge out of the shadowy mists of tradition. And I just have LMAO written right above that. And then he follows up with the principles underlying American democracy codified in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were based on the writings of Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, and the other founding fathers who in turn derived many of their ideas from the English liberal tradition of Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. I'm not going to dispute, of course, that John Locke had a profound influence on the American founding. I would suggest that if you avail yourself of almost any of the correspondence between the gentlemen who attached their name to the Declaration of Independence, you will be swiftly introduced to what traditions they did think that they were operating in. And surprisingly, a lot of it had to do with Protestants and Rome, and you know, and I actually think that this is like a cheap point. This is like one of the cheaper points that he makes where I'm not just like, well, that makes me uncomfortable, whatever. I think this point is made strictly out of convenience for his own purposes. Yeah. To be honest. And like it, it, it made was... me ask myself why. <clears throat> and one of the things that suggested itself to me was that if you spend any time thinking about the fact that like when thinking about a constitution they thought a lot about Rome and specifically like the, you see a lot of America in the description of Rome by, uh, I can't remember his name. It's been too long since I've read anything, (laughs) but we can include it in show notes or something. It's still like (laughs) the Greek guy who's like, here's Libyus. Yeah. Oh yes. Libyus. Yeah. The Roman army, the the Roman Mm -hmm. constitution, the way that there are like these balances between these three estates that constitute society, you see a lot of it Mm -hmm. in the way that America was conceived of and talked about. And if you take that into the argument, it then suggests 
an extremely non, shall we say, like progressive, cumulative version of societal development position we might say yeah because yeah. you're like oh like this is like some guys saying hey like what constitution best fits our situation and then thinking about mm-hmm. it and then picking one and it's like that's kind of like aristotle <laughs> like, <laughs> well yeah it's kind of like mean, none of these constitutions are perfect and so they all kind of like cycle or you know he brings this up as an alternative view to his own but he never admits how much of that is present in his own exam, you know, like that's right. sort yeah, of- that's that's sort of what I mean. That's why it's like this, this weakest thing. I mean, you can just go like when they started to convene the Constitutional Convention. Adams was like, "I'm going to retire to my study and read the history of every republic that has ever existed, and empirically figure out like what the best Republican regime could be." You know, like that's and of course, like that means you're really spending a shitload of time with Rome. Like that's really right. what that what that ends up meaning, right? Doing um, it in that way is also like that is the classical tradition of like political theory. That is yeah, not yeah. Well, that is okay. not rational construction of like no. an ideal constitution from like axiomatic principles. Right. And to be fair, to be fair, Adams is sort of a rare bird, also a shitty president, but a rare bird <laughs> who had the most to say, I think, against Jefferson and Madison about their mm. own more Whiggish tendencies mm-hmm. uh, towards perfectibility. So I don't want to say again that that's not part of it or that Locke doesn't have this oh, uh, prevailing effect because I think this is what I don't like about the like overly like trad emphasis on the founding fathers is that it misses the tensions that are born out in the constitution and that we live with today, I would argue, at least at a cultural level, at least at sort of like a walking around sense level. And that that's actually like that those divisions are actually a big part in a subtle way of the acrimony of the States and has been there for a really long time. You know, the, the states have always hated each other. This is what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> they've always fucking hated each other. And the government has always hated the states. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's that's part of it. So, okay. why how is thumotic. it important? Right, how thumotic, right? Yeah. <laughs> so why is it important to bring that up? Well, first of all, he does a very interesting thing here where he talks about the relationship between Hobbes and Locke. And I just want to point out that there are people who will tell you that Hobbes does not have a direct influence on Locke, believe it or not. That's actually a point that Strauss comes up with. And I had a talk with Alex Priu of the New Thinkery about that a little bit on here and how that's been historically recently debunked by a memoir from one of Locke's fellow students when they were in college together. And he was like, yeah, Locke was always telling everybody to read Hobbes all the time. So, <laughs> so that's just, just an important thing to sort of bring out a little bit of Fukuyama's lineage here and per- perhaps who else other than Koshev might be in the mix. But one of the reasons why he wants to make this argument that, you know, you don't go through this sort of like traditionalism in the creation of America is I think to actually like locate a politics that ruptures from history itself. Mm. And that that's almost this like Kierkegaardian leap of faith. Like he's taking in this, in this Whiggish way. (laughs) (laughs) That's like a possible thing that that, that we could do. And in fact, and not only that, it's the thing that has won the day, Mm. you know, and and like, that's the, again, the cold war is a background is supremely important here. 
because there have been basically two contending ideas of this rupture and how it could work. And the communist one failed. Yeah. And he is fairly dismissive of it on the grounds that he lays out. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a, it's not that in depth, but he does basically go into like communism never could have satisfied the needs of this historical trajectory because it in fact did not accord people with this universal mm-hmm. dignity, this isothumia or whatever, mm-hmm. which was going to be necessary for the stated goals of that project as laid out by a lot of the Marxist thinkers, which was the ultimate like generation of this classless society mm-hmm. where work was as little as possible and people were just essentially free and equal. That what you got in practice was the creation of a bureaucratic master class and a bunch of people who are essentially incapable of having being accorded that kind of dignity or of having like any effect on their immediate lives due to the way those societies were structured that necessitated their fall. That's the Fukuyama mm-hmm. account of especially the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, and I think in the case of some place like China or Vietnam, he would say they simply avoided the fall by accepting the inevitability <laughs> and making the transition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like uh... To some extent. Yeah, Deng Xiaoping looked over his shoulder and he was just like, have you guys ever heard of 1099 forms? <laughs> but yeah, so I think that that's sort of what's going on here. And the thing that sort of like gets stuck in my craw about this, like, look, Fukuyama says some things that make me uncomfortable because I, I, I worry they might be true. Right? So let me just say that. And we'll probably get to that when we get to the last man part. So I don't want to say like, I'm not like posting cope here, you know, like, no, liberalism is at the end. No, (laughs) I I just want to say that there's like, there's a more perhaps sophisticated way to try to understand this end of history moment that doesn't result in what I think is like almost a Panglossian, you know, perspective on some of these and that's some of the stuff that i think he hedges on going on going later in here so okay i guess we should talk about nietzsche now right it ends up being the other and most interesting part of the book is whenever nietzsche comes up it's like nietzsche and thumos and like yeah Tier two would be like Hegel and Khrushchev, and then like tier three would be like Latin American countries' development policy or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which isn't to say that like it's not that the topic isn't interesting, but the treatment it gets in this book is just like I could have done without it. It was not not that fun to read, it's nor dated. did it contribute it, it, that much to the argument ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, but like, yeah, so anyways, Nietzsche is interesting, and I don't think he fairly characterizes him all the time. I actually don't Mm -hmm. think he does history of philosophy with that many scruples. He kind of just sort of like throws things in a bucket and then moves on. So it's it's that's like amazing. It is like it's also very funny to do to Nietzsche, who is so insistent on genealogy, is like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) because he, I mean, it's like a quibble, but he identifies Nietzsche as essentially being like 
I guess this is sort of what Hegelians do. Is they're like everyone's within my framework. He's like so Nietzsche. He's like a master partisan, yeah, <laughs> which is yeah, like right. yeah. one way to read him. Essentially, he's doing Hegelian historicism, but just in a different way, or mm-hmm. whatever. And that there's no other possible like you know. Yeah, he's saying that like Hegel. He, it's like he's Hegel's like blah blah blah, but it's good, and Nietzsche's like blah blah blah, but it's bad actually. That's Essentially, basically the treatment that <laughs> that they're given and here it's definitely up for debate as like with everything with Nietzsche because of the fact that I would say there's definitely over the course of his work he changes his mind about things but it's never mm-hmm. in a very explicit way you kind of yeah. learn what he thinks because of what other things he says implies and you can mm-hmm. see how that changes over time and Consequently, I don't really think there is like a Nietzschean system or point of view that you can say exists. Like maybe you could do more easily with Leibniz. You could say like, well, if you look at the trajectory by the end of his life, this is what he believed or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think with Mm -hmm. Nietzsche, it's much more fragmentary and perhaps meant to be so. But nonetheless, there is a really cool, I think it might be a book chapter, but I ended up reading it. It's just like a little floating article by Toulouse, which I will find so we can throw in the notes. But it's essentially using Nietzsche to say, like, the point of view of Nietzsche is not, it's not master over slave. It's anti-master slave dialectic mm-hmm. because, and I kind of see this in Nietzsche, like there is a exuberant sort of positivity mm-hmm. of like especially when you're getting like revaluation of all values like the thing that esteems is what is great this doesn't really cry out for recognition and that's to lose his point is that like putting him in a framework where recognition is necessary is missing the point of Nietzsche which is that mm-hmm. this exuberant positivity just exists as its own thing and it doesn't look for outside valuation any longer yeah, that's, that that's like, actually the, a vital point to sort of being this man of the future. Exactly. And so it's kind of cheapens it to say that he's an aristocratic partisan of like a reassertion of masters or whatever, because he's trying to operate outside of that dialectic, whether or not he does so, it's up to you. But mm-hmm. like there's a point worth making, but nonetheless, so... Nietzsche sits apart from this vision of the future in that way, and that for him, the devaluation, the suppression of thumos into isothumia versus megathumia, if I'm remembering that right, um, Mm -hmm. this is robbing man of essentially what it is to be a man, which is that there were always some men who would strive for this kind of like greatness, which is just purely irrational. And you do see this in a lot of Nietzsche where he says like, you know, you have to essentially, I think Fukuyama quotes this one, you have to believe in something more than it deserves to be believed in, in order Mm -hmm. to do something great. Like if you were rational about it, you never would have gotten out of the front door on whatever it was. And there's this kind of like, and also the sense of like living your life artistically in an aesthetic way, because tragedy is what makes a difficult life having been worth living in the first place. I think it's definitely really related to this idea of like this irrational like personal longing that you have to fulfill through all this kind of great hardship. So for Nietzsche, like this is kind of man. And if man is going to be liberated from all former forms of traditional morality and authority, then this is the thing that can 
transcend collapse into pure nihilism Mm -hmm. and the lives of the last men who really they want no great pleasures nor great pains but just sort of to live at ease without having much to do much to strive for or hope for in either direction a very neutral life seemingly robbed of like the things that are for Nietzsche and probably many of us kind of inspiring or that make Mm -hmm. you think that like there is something in the human spirit that can kind of transcend mundanity but also the like the shackles of mundanity that tell you that like you shouldn't hope for ever being able to do this or that and the part of your spirit that immediately rebels against that and it's like i'd rather die trying than Mm -hmm. ever listen to you kind of a thing so there's this he cites nietzsche as a skeptic of this entire project on that basis and i would also say that nietzsche kind of has what he would say would be the relativistic viewpoint of global societies and cultures um Mm -hmm. which is that because for nietzsche they each develop their own sense of what is right and wrong based on their own needs Mm -hmm. and preferences or whatever as as civilizations and he thinks that these are each to each other incoherent because they're culturally specific in like an absolute Mm -hmm. sense and so there is like no possibility of dialogue or of a a common sensibility to them all at depth and thus human civilizations can grow and spring into an indefinite number of directions. As a result mm-hmm. of that, Fukuyama calls it the mini shoots with as many flowers blooming or whatever vision of the world mm-hmm. versus the vision of the world as a train that has a single destination. And the differences you see inherent in the earth and the societies therein are simply because of the different stages that people might be at. Yeah, which train car they in. Yeah. Exactly. So for Nietzsche, the telosis could be infinite, indefinite. And for a Galian, they decided they could not be. And if you see them in that way, it's kind of a deceptive appearance. Mm-hmm. And in these two ways, kind of like Nietzsche presents the argument against this Hegelian Fukuyama idea of like liberal society has landed us at the end of history because now that we're accorded this sort of like blanket universal respect as human beings by liberal governments which I think is theoretical for sure. Like theoretically, Mm -hmm. that is the case. But at what point is that practically not the case so much so that the theoretical aspect no longer seems to like hold true Mm -hmm. is a question I sort of had because we are accorded like this kind of, you know, like, what would you call it? It's like an on paper kind of respect that like legally, Mm -hmm. technically I'm supposed to be accorded certain rights, but like, if you're any one of the people for whom those are violated constantly with no recourse (laughs) and Fukuyama brings this up, he's like, you know, there is a lot of inequality and a lot of jostling, even within these liberal societies Mm -hmm. for people who do feel infringed upon all the time. And he does the kind of thing where he brings it up and he's like, but, you know, that'll probably work itself out or not. Well, yeah. Well, and he also says something important that the people who want that to change will make the argument within the paradigm right. of liberalism anyway, which, so I, which by the way, like, way. And, I, and I just want to say just really clearly that this is what, this is critiquing myself, by the way, as well. 
this is exactly what happened with like the whole Bernie DSA thing. Everybody was like, get in, loser. We're doing fucking socialism. Bernie's our guy. But it's just another type of liberalism. You can tell yourself that there's a socialist thing happening, but it's not really. Like down to its core premises, it will be liberal. And that I think that there, that's where like what Fukuyama saying really has teeth insofar mm-hmm. as nobody's stepping outside of what's happening. Like, and it's not even, it's not even that people are making like long march through the institutions, like proceduralist claims about how to gradually make socialism more acceptable. They, I'm sure, sure some people were making that argument, but really this is this is my this is my brutal takeaway from this book okay i I wrote something on the band thursday and like millennial internet confessionalism and marketing for cat d's newsletter (laughs) default wisdom and i was trying to be the francis fukuyama of cultural criticism like what (laughs) this really means is that everything is advertising that was all advertising that's what that was I didn't notice that at the time, but really what we're picking when we pick between things today is between more or less honest advertising. That's the black pill. (laughs) (laughs) That's the black pill, you know, and, and exhaust pilled. Yeah. That's your exhaust pilled. And so like, that's sort of what's troubling about this sort of last man thing, because it's like, okay, you know, Fukuyama's smart enough to say. He says two things that are, I think are really smart at the end of this book. First one is, would it really be so bad if this were the case? Would it, like, if you really look at history, would this be so bad to be wealthy, even if unequal, if it's relatively peaceful? If you have more or less guaranteed expectations of what's going on, you know, would it really be so bad for everyone to live like this? Couldn't, you know, what would be, what would be so wrong with this sort of like middling middle classification of society? Don't you in your inmost heart have this little voice that tells you You don't really mean that. You wouldn't really give this up. Don't lie. You know how it is. You're a grown up. What would you go and die for a cause for? You might want to wear the t-shirt that says you would. And hey, there's a campaign donation attached to it. (laughs) So you're ready for that. But are you at this stage really ready to go out there? Would you really want to take responsibility for this whole thing? Are you ready for that level of risk? Or is this good enough? Maybe with some adjustments, maybe with a little Medicare for all on top. Could that sweeten the deal for you? So that's, I think, a very, very sneaky and wise point that he makes. And then the next point is the sort of contrary one about the last man. And this is the troubling one. 
let's say it is good enough. Let's say you're willing to step through the threshold and say, God damn it, I'm a liberal. I'm ready to have sensible policy discussions about white papers churned out by RAND and or the Center for American Progress, maybe even the Heritage Foundation, if I'm feeling squirrely, I'll do it. Okay, but can this actually supply you with the love and loyalty it needs to be stewarded in the future? Or will this whole regime, the political foundations upon which is this is all built, just become another brand? And as long as you can crack open that can of cola of your choice and say, God damn, the product is good, you won't fucking care. And then what does that mean? And how could that get dangerous? That, I think, is the troubling end of this book, which is the best part, right? You read the whole second half of this book, and you're like, okay, some code of Hegel going on. We got some Nietzsche showing up. I get the struggle for recognition. Maybe like four or five chapters you don't give a single shit about. They're not even that well written, and they're kind of fucking boring. And then <laughs> he's got this like last banger part about the last man, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I appreciated the levels to which he was ambivalent about his own conclusions and arguments that he seemed to be embracing in the beginning. That he, like we said, there's a sense in which he kind of introduces things and then just leaves them aside, but there's a way in which that's pretty honest. You get a lot of that at the end where he's, you know, says there is a certain point to which this is troubling. And Hegel says, well, Kojev says, after the end of history, there will be no more war because there's nothing to fight over because we all basically agree that like, this is what mm -hmm. it is. And however, Hegel says like there will need to be war because war is instructive. Mm -hmm. It creates a certain kind of citizen and without it, people will simply fall into decadence as we were mentioning earlier mm -hmm. so that there will need to be <laughs> at least Big 19th century vibes coming off of Hegel right there. Yeah. Like there will at least need to be the threat of war and the preparation for it and perhaps occasional, what is he, he calls them like decisive conflicts every hundred years yeah, to sort of yeah. keep keep things in shape, I guess. Every once in a while, America is just going to have to pick up some tiny country and throw it against the wall. <laughs> let other people know who's boss, right? <laughs> it's Yeah, it's very difficult to not read that line and start thinking about Latin America. <laughs> yeah, or fucking the Middle East or, or whatever, Vietnam, yeah. Korea. I definitely know. think the vision of that he had would have been like, oh, yeah, it'll be like like Panama or something. It'll be fine. Like It'll be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. R rather uh, than Iraq 2. Yeah, or a Rock 2 contractor boogaloo. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's interesting. Everything you brought up, I was kind of trolling around to see, like, as Zizek mentioned Fukuyama again these days, because... The old meme was him being like, Fukuyama is not an idiot. <laughs> yeah, like, he's not a complete this... idiot. That's the, that's yeah. the important. Yeah. And the we're last all thing I could find Fukuyamaists. Right. And kind of true, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the, he was on another podcast a couple of years ago and he was essentially saying that, like, he'd be down if we had like Medicare and universal basic income for like 
dynamic liberal capitalism to exist on top of that, which, and I was like, that's pretty interesting. (laughs) Yeah, he's just a social Democrat, right? Like that's the, you know, that's what you get. Like when, like, you know, look, I owe Zizek a lot. I learned a lot from him. The important thing to know about Zizek is not only is he really smart, but politically, he's Ash Sharkar, the British socialist who went on TV and said to Pierce Morgan, I'm literally a communist, you idiot, with extra <laughs> steps. Okay? It's just that with extra steps. And some of those are pretty fucking interesting steps. You get some nice staircase vistas from that. Right? But that's what's going on. And by the way, that's not me being like fucking sheep. I'm not like, Jack, why don't you have the way out? Come on, bro. I don't have the way um, out. That's why we did this not. whole fucking podcast. You know, like, right? Okay, so we can talk about that now. I think we've got a picture of the last man. We've got a picture of the problem here. We understand it emotionally. Hopefully we understand it politically. We understand what it might mean. You know, there's some interesting things here about like Darnity's drive for endless novelty and how that can paper over perhaps like uh, problems as things get old. I think that's something we're, we're experiencing right now. And whether or not the provision of all that novelty has done a good job of creating the type of subjectivity that's interested in stewardship. Big problems. There's a question of whether you want to steward this at all. I'm sure our readership is cleft in two on that question, you know, based on what I can tell from people's political sensibilities. But this is a this is a difficult, this is a difficult thing to get out of, right? This is uh, the triumphalism here is a little bit hedged. You know, Fukuyama every couple of years puts an op-ed that's like, I was right. And then two years go by and he was like, maybe I was wrong. And then another couple of years and he was like, I'm right again, depending on what's it's going like a on. way to ride your own wave for sure. Dude, it's <laughs> fucking great. Tide comes in, tide comes out, man. Just be there at 6 a.m. to surf, bud. You know? <laughs> like, so I, I can I can respect that. It's sort of like the endless work of the take that mm-hmm. the end of history requires. So where are we after all this time, John, of running this podcast and talking about why nothing feels possible? I've been thinking about that, knowing that this was coming up, especially, I think, in, in relation to this book, in a way, mm-hmm. it formed a nice kind of occasion to think about the broader topics that we've, because a lot of stuff that we've read, I saw mm-hmm. like bits and pieces of it in here. And yeah, I don't know. I have to say personally, I definitely don't think I've ever really felt any pull to believe in like the existence of a specific kind of like telos for like global societies that are sort of going towards anything. Um, Mm -hmm. I've seen the arguments a lot and they've never really successfully won me over from, I don't know, my weird hodgepodge of like classical political theory mixed with like (laughs) different forms of weird religious stuff yeah which kind of provoke because you know it just i think it's one of the things that one of the ways in which i found like the curtis yarvin stuff to be sort of congenial to my sensibilities isn't necessarily in any specifics or anything but it's more of in that he also kind of takes the 
alternating regime type view of human mm-hmm. society and he does it in a contemporary context and pretty much no one else really tries to do that that often who is like a very mm-hmm. public figure and i often find at least that is like you know i kind of agree with that like all of these things are i think possible still i don't think it's impossible to have a reemergence of a different configuration of these three types into a new constitution under different circumstances and i don't think that we're marching towards a perfection of that. It just seems to me like I don't have any compelling argument to make for that right now. It's just like my gestalt after my whole life and everything that I've read and saw is like, it seems to me that these things have always kind of alternated and they can alternate. And if there is some like, you know, big story to history and the movement of mankind or whatever, which I think there is, I think it's not on that plane or on that level, but on a very different one, which is not necessarily going to have like the final conclusion on the earth or, you Mm -hmm. know, I, I've never kind of identified with that hope ever since casting like teenage communism to one side, I was able (laughs) to think, thankfully leave that behind. So that's one thing. And I think that like, as interesting as this is in a sort of hopeful way, I think that anything is is possible on a long enough timeline Mm -hmm. and the feeling that nothing is possible you know it's i don't know if i feel that way no i don't know if i feel that way you know it's funny i was thinking about this i was reading you know, I interviewed Michael Quenco on the show. He and I have become something of friends or like thinking colleagues. I actually owe him a phone call on his last piece for Compact, which is sort of about like, you know, populism's over, what now? And he's basically like, what if we actually had an oligarchic leadership class that we didn't fucking hate? Maybe we should actually like, if the right wants to do anything, I think this would also be true of like the socialist left. Like you would actually want to have a critical mass of people that would be capable of governing literally any part of society, right? Like that's easier said than done, of course, but there's something a little bit more sober about that than the sexy, like, you know, the thing about like January 6th or whatever is that it, I just, again, I thought about Zizek's thing about V for Vendetta too. Like I, I'd sell my own mother into slavery to get a sequel to V for Vendetta that starts the day after the revolution. <laughs> you know, like, I remember he said that at some conference in Israel. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's one of my favorite things he's ever said, because it's like, you know, it's true. Okay, so I think that there are some things possible there. I think that it's like uh, good people who make smart wig arguments are people who point to just the sheer amount of like energy we have at our disposable and the amount of wealth and sort of like a very utilitarian way, sort of like alleviation of suffering. But I think what I actually kind of liked about Fukuyama's thing is that he's actually clear that that's like not enough for understanding what a good human life is. I will give him credit in that regard. He's not like a like raw utilitarian, like, you know, aren't Doritos great? that has actually better calories than you would have had 150 years ago type of guy. Oh yeah. There is a great line where he's like, you know, the, the like thumotic component, let's say people who have a strong thumotic urge to like (laughs) do this kind of thing in our society, like the people, those people now are like Donald Trump and like George Bush because (laughs) politics business like these are the arenas in which you can do that and we we want to keep them out of the military 
that was kind of the like compromise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was just like, honestly, fair enough. Like, but he goes on to say that like they're, you know, the life of a Donald Trump or a George Bush might be difficult and they might, you know, but it's not the most difficult life. And when you think about what they're achieving, it's not really like that just or that meaningful or, mm-hmm. you know, like, so if those, their lives are like the horizon of human possibility, then we definitely can feel a certain ennui about that because we yeah. know that something is there than lost. Like there, we all have a certain sense that something greater than being George Bush or Donald Trump should exist. Mm-hmm. And he kind of points that out and just sort of leaves it there for you to, to consider without suggesting any necessary resolution. No, and I think think, maybe you'll get used to it. I think, I think, yeah, you know, I, I take a look at sort of what's happening with Ukraine, talked about it with Phil Cunliffe on here. Hope people enjoyed that. Love Phil, love chatting with him. And it's clear to me that like the scale of conflict seems to have gone down over time. You should probably be grateful for that. Honestly, I don't have these sort of like regenerative, like late Victorian ideas about bloodshed. I am still (laughs) convinced that world war one is like, we did a pretty good job of putting a cigarette out in that idea. You know, that's why I don't like this trad shit of just like, you know, you were meant to be a warrior. I'm like, Oh, not so fast. (laughs) You know, like, what you're talking about is you're just going to go fucking stab someone to death at a Tesco because no one will look at your dick. Like, that's really like what this is going to turn into. <laughs> that's like some Patrick Bateman shit. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, yeah, you're not going to be a warrior. That's not what's fucking going on right now, bud. Sorry. Either that or you'll buy some like Liver King supplements. I don't know. But where the fuck was I going with this? Anyway. The regenerative aspects of warfare, perhaps. Right, the regenerative aspects of warfare, I'm not convinced of that. Like, it's weird, right? I feel like, you know, I have this, like, also this hodgepodge within me, where I think I've actually, over the course of this show, become incredibly grateful for the, like, regime structure of America in a way that I, like, was really not at all. And also, like, for my country, I've become far more patriotic, you know, than, than I was. But that has done nothing to disabuse me and has fact only increased my level of concern for what I worry for, for this society. And I do worry that the calls to greatness are few and far between, and that that's actually a real problem, right? So when Abraham Lincoln is a house representative, he gives this wonderful little address to a lyceum in Illinois, and he talks about mob violence the mobocratic sensibility toward vigilante justice. It's going on all the time. How it worried him, right? Because we're half a century out now from the founding at the time that he's giving this. And he's worried and actually very that the sons of these founding fathers perhaps forgot what they were fighting for and why it was important to maintain it. And this flouting of the law was incredibly disturbing. First of all, right? You have the immediate effect of the fact that it's just like abrogating the social contract to a large degree, right? But it's actually the second and third order effects that Lincoln is the most worried about, it turns out, in this speech. And he says, you know, one of the problems that it will do is that it will demoralize everyday people who would otherwise be law-abiding and not in anyone's way, and that it would turn them 
away from common life with each other because the law that would bind people together would be frayed. Like the third order effect is that in damaging the political institution of the law, that it has this sort of ripple out effect across the political enterprise of America. And that the entrenchment of corruption, the denigration of the law and the disregard for it would keep anybody with noble ambition from entering into office. And I was, that was such like a classical idea about governance. This is back when like, if you were a legislator, you actually wrote your own legislation, right? Some pencil dick from Rand didn't hand it to you like five minutes before you walked into the chamber or whatever happens now, you know? And uh, which is funny, I like met a guy from Rand in Budapest and he was actually really sweet and we got along <laughs> <dinner> together. <laughs> Me and this dude who was like formerly in the British Foreign Service, like it was the three of us at dinner. It was a very like wild experience to have. But uh, I think that that's sort of what worries me now, right? And I see that sort of across different domains right? We, we can talk about what the, what's happening, right? Like Atlanta is, is having a very fiery, but mostly peaceful protest right now. To use the phrase from that famous CNN Chiron when Ferguson was burning down or whatever, not Ferguson, Kenosha, I think. And th that does have this demoralizing effect. You can also see it in other ways, right? Like uh, there's that... Uh, account on Twitter, Unusual Whales, that keeps a its tabs on what how, how people in Congress are trading their stocks. And it's like clear how fucking corrupt that is. Like it's, I doubt you could ever get like a perfect political world without corruption, by the way. Like sometimes corruption is good because it means like somebody owes something, something, some, something and they're responsive to that, right? So like, you know, all right, you're never going to get like pure rational government, fine. But I think that does have a demoralizing effect. I think it also has, has a similar effect in the amount of like third party HR regime stuff that happens in people's lives because, and this is sort of the lashing point is that it atrophies people's ability to actually live with the friction of interacting with each other every day. And that that creates problems of self-government. And so when I take a look at everything that we've talked about. I'm very swayed by Fukuyama's own reservations about the last man's ability to inspire the type of class or group or cadre that can rise to the occasion of the tragic sense of history and girding society against corrosive waves of entropy in many domains in life. And I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I'm doing what I can in my small way. That's actually when I wake up in the morning, even to write my little fucking energy newsletter, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking, I hope that somebody finds this useful who's in a position of power who can make the right choice here based on the information that I'm supplying. You know, and the other thing that working on this podcast has done is that it has given me a historical valence that I was lacking before. And it has made me more skeptical of large claims and 
more respectful of the great dangers of folly and ignorance in making decisions. So that's not an answer to whether or not things feel possible, but it is what I've learned. I don't know how you think about that, John. Yeah. It, you know, we started this a while ago. It just got we started this during like the me. pandemic. Like time <laughs> yeah. has passed in a big way. And definitely a lot of things have changed for me personally as well. Same. Like there's kind of definitely like an arc or something to the beginning and end of this and what happened over the course of it. Like, I don't exactly remember, but yeah, it was the pandemic. I was kind of going to school. We were doing this, but school was totally online. So I was just kind of sitting around all the time, like wondering what was going to happen to the world because mm -hmm. the economy was like being shut down and everyone was hiding and like freaking out and watching mm -hmm. CNN 24 hours a day until they were like psychologically like falling into states of disrepair that they yeah. perhaps could never come back from, from that experience. So if it was a weird and crazy time and then, you know, a lot changed for me. I like went to school, finished a whole degree and now I'm like trying to figure out what I want to do next or like pursuing those things or whatever. And over the course of doing that, I definitely came into a new sense of like both possibility and self-efficacy personally than I had ever had before, especially mm -hmm. in contrast to like early twenties. Oh, because yeah. I think oh, same. Yeah. Marriage really changed that for me. I oh, got yeah. married in February of 2020. <laughs> 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 but I think it's important to like, maybe even go that far back because the like, why does nothing feel possible thing like had its genesis for me in those times a long mm -hmm. time before we ever started this. And I think that in some sense, the personal is political because whatever personal bullshit I have going on is my political views, like laundering them into <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. If you're being honest with yourself, it, it has an impact, right? Like, yeah. Like if I don't feel good, then I'm going to be into like weird stuff. And then that'll be my like express point of view on life or something it was definitely the case, like successive sort of like ideological commitments that were only really meant to make me feel like I could just do nothing until eventually like a new regime would give me a place to be or something. Yeah, and then I could sure. finally yeah. be efficacious in the world. Yeah. Government like going, mandated GF when. Exactly. But going through a lot of just life and then having to sort of realize that like all that was in front of me was to like figure out something to do and then work my way towards it. And then that was not it was not going to be that difficult actually to handle if you just did it one thing at a time mm -hmm. and actually doing that and then going through multiple things where I'm like, Oh, I'm doing this now. I never thought I would do this. Oh, I'm doing this mm -hmm. now. I never thought I would do this. And then kind of being at the end of one big stage of that is like, Oh, you know, like I'm not so sure nothing is possible anymore in a personal way. I was very convinced of that for a long time, though. It was kind mm -hmm. of a depressing background noise of my life was the like things are never going to be able to change for mm -hmm. me because I've just accepted that they won't, you know. And now that that feels kind of broken, I, you know, I feel like I'm on the cusp of trying to go do more things um, mm -hmm. that will probably be difficult in a like good way. 
in a way that stimulates the thumos you might say the sort of like i can go be challenged in like some ways that make me feel sort of alive and human and like i might actually be able to do something that makes a contribution to the world that definitely is something that developed especially over the course of doing this i think a lot of the the changes in my outlook kind of happened over this time and also like I think the biggest change is that I just now have to admit that like, I'm a man of my time. Sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, you know, like it's only possible for me to be as weird as I am because of the time that I was born and live in and like mm-hmm. the opportunities and things that were given to me, like dude, globalization dude. made me. <laughs> dude, for real. I was like, it was so funny, man. I was talking to you and I were talking about the show Vikings uh-huh. And we were talking about the Jonathan Reese Myers character, who's like the sexy yeah. battle pope and how weird yeah. that is, you know? And I was sort of like reading our exchange aloud to my wife and she was like dying laughing. And she was like, what would you have done if you hadn't found John? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like molded in like the same way by like the same forces, like patterned in a very similar sort of thing. And I was like, yeah, I actually don't know like, you know, what I would have done actually, because you and I have so many of the same like idiosyncratic grievances and, and refinements and tastes and frames of reference and phrase context, of reference yeah. too. Yeah. 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 Like one of the first conversations we had like at depth was on the way to disc village. And we were talking about like black metal Xeroxing as a postmodern <laughs> aesthetic, <laughs> you know, but uh, you know, all that being said, like, I think, uh, God, that was like 12 years ago. Now that I think about it, all that being said, I think for me, it's also been like, I still have political aspirations. What I realize is that I don't really like living in history is tragic and you don't really like, I, this is my experience, right? So I, I don't want to universalize this, even though I'm using like a general you, but for me, I realized that I really didn't get to pick a lot of how or with whom I got to be influential or could be influential. That it was a lot of just taking opportunities and different doors opening and then just kind of ending up somewhere. And that there isn't anything necessarily wrong with that. I have opportunities I might not have had otherwise from it. And I think I could be potentially influential in a certain way. I don't want to say too much about that. And that's that's not just empowering, but also very, very humbling in terms of how much I think things should go the way I want them to versus how I can be the most helpful. And that was like a big dose of, oh, I, let's just say that I got, I got rocked in the psyche by the 12 steps yet again in my life with the power of acceptance and doing that. And part of it's just getting older too. Like I'm 34, you know, yeah. like we started this, I was in my early thirties. I just worked on Michael Schellenberger's apocalypse never and been let go because of the pandemic and sort of didn't really know what to do with that. Didn't know what was going on. The only thing I'm really good at is writing and talking about this stuff. And I've been lucky enough to cobble together a career doing that. The show was part of how that became possible for me. And part of it was just that uh, I believed in something more than it deserved to be believed in, which was my ability to become a professional writer, which was stupid. There were times in my life where I was like, I should just get like a fucking job. Why won't I just get a normal job instead of writing for free for heavy metal publications? And I think I turned down a high paying job from my alma mater so that I could write freelance and work at a bookstore in New Mexico. 
Like they offered me fucking benefits. I could have moved back to Vermont. I could have had this whole other fucking life and I didn't take it. And I remember turning it down and in the back of my mind, I was like, this might be stupid. You know, but I was willing to put it all on black. I'm not saying anybody else should. If anybody asked me, should I be a writer? No, don't do it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I get the, I mean, I feel like I went through something roughly analogous mm-hmm. in a way. I went to school and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to increase my economic opportunity. That's why I'm here. So I'm going to be computer programmer guy now. And I actually got into that and spent like half of college doing that. I was, you know, I learned one that like I'm capable of it and could do it and found parts of it enjoying being a nerd. Like it was mostly the historical, like older things that really like got me going about it or whatever, mm-hmm. less so anything like directly marketable or new, but nonetheless, yeah. but always in the back of my mind, there was this thing that was like, why don't you just do like what you've always wanted to do? You know, yeah. like, why are you doing this? And I would be like, well, you know, I have like external reasons. I want to have like a stable life or whatever. And like, so I should just keep on this path and like, I can indulge the other stuff as a hobby. But, you know, like I was in a relationship that kind of fell apart and went away pretty abruptly. And Mm -hmm. I was suddenly like living in a whole new constellation of like factors where Mm -hmm. I didn't have to have a stable life if I didn't want to, like I could do anything I wanted at that point. And so I was like, you know what? I feel like horrible deep down in my spirit thinking about going to this like web programming class tomorrow. So I'm just not going to take it. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go back to like doing history, just like fuck it. Like yeah. we're going to do it live, take it all the way, like see what happens or whatever. So I finished that degree, like spent a lot of time studying Korean and like classical Chinese so I can go try and like make that for real, for real by doing grad school overseas for some considerable amount of time Mm -hmm. until I can, you know, essentially operate in the like classicist tradition of another part of the world Mm -hmm. fully. Just because like a lot of factors have kind of been in me that were like, this is what I wanted to do in some way since I was kind of little, you know, being a dipshit watching anime, like somehow that eventually wormed its way into like a much more full like expression of like this kind of desire now, which was part of my reflection, like this would only be possible under like the global, the globalist, like liberal world that I live in, which kind of created a world in which I could be the recipient of these random streams of information for like most of my life over the internet, which mm-hmm. over time like accrued into, into me being me. And in a way, one of the things I always kind of loved about Nietzsche was the Amor Fati thing where it's just like, yeah. love your fate. And I kind of always, most of the time, I don't have any trouble like feeling that way where I'm like, I'm happy to be me i'm happy that things turned out the way that they did even if it sucks and i feel like shit every day i'm still like happy about it like because mm-hmm. i couldn't think it couldn't imagine it any other way you know like yeah, this yeah. couldn't be any other way than it is and that kind of feeling then propelled me into like okay let's just do this whole thing even though minutely it's like wow this is scary like how is this going to turn out could be really bad like i don't know what's going on day to day sometimes like shouldn't i have chosen something more reasonable 
but then the answer is like I don't think I actually could have, you know. And yeah, I think for people who people who are there, it almost doesn't feel like you have a choice in a way. Because there have been so many times where I saw an off ramp and I tried to take it and it just didn't work out. Like yeah, dude, I was forced back on times. Yeah, I was, you know, as soon as I think I'm out, they pull me back in, you know, like exactly. Eventually you're like, okay, I'm in. Yeah, you're like, fine. (laughs) Yeah, I was just like, fuck it. Like this is, you know, yeah, we gotta turn into the skid. Like that's what's that's what's happening. So I mean, what I can say to everyone listening is that it has been an absolute pleasure to work on this, even in the last six, seven months when it sort of it's me on my own and I sort of maybe lost a little bit of direction. I know some of you reached out to me about that, but even then it was, it was worth doing and I'm glad I did it. And I'm thank you to every guest we had on and for friends that I just called out. <laughs> it's like, Hey, want to do an episode? And they were like, sure. Josh Bregman was very, very good to me about that. And, you know, for all of the feedback that you guys gave us, I'm really grateful. We didn't expect to have a listenership almost at all when we did this and the fact that we even had a Patreon and could do the sort of like full book length treatments was really special to us. The fact that we could be as untimely in a lot of ways as we were purposefully in this felt really unique. And I know for me, without sort of the more historical and industrial episodes, which will now become part of Nuclear Barbarians, by the way. So if you want to get more of that, you can hop over there. You know, that basically ended up becoming my career now. And that's what I do. I wouldn't be doing any of this shit without this and without you guys. So thank you for listening for the last few years. This has been a very lucky passage that ended up being more transformative than I expected. Yeah. I completely echo the sentiment that I didn't really expect a listenership because I had no, never done anything like this. So I had no reason to like think that, it would take off in any kind of way. It was really just like, we're going to do this and see what happens, but it'll be enriching for us. So, mm-hmm. you know, that'll be enough. But then I remember when people started writing in at first, it wasn't even big yet, but like the fact that people were listening and responding and, you know, it seemed to be like connecting to the stuff. It was really rewarding and continued to be so throughout the rest of this. It's kind of something that kept me wanting to keep doing it and coming back, even when things were getting hairy for me. And mm-hmm. I wasn't as I was much a part of this anymore. I was kind of always feeling a certain sense of regret over that being the state of affairs because of how meaningful this eventually became mm-hmm. uh, really without my expectation of that ever being the case. So I'm also, you know, forever grateful for everybody who's ever listened and, you know, found anything that that was like interesting or moving to you or reached out to us ever. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's been really cool. And I do hope, as we were saying before the show, that in some way these fun woo-woo little liberal arts discussions will continue in some <laughs> form, hopefully for the rest of our lives, but perhaps in a, a less frequent format. And yeah. if you're if you're connected to like Emmett's social media, like you will be apprised of that, like when the day comes that that happens again. So, you know, not gone forever, but we're coming back in a different form for now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So 
that's it, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. And as ever, stay safe out there. Touched a face